Welcome to Access Control, a podcast providing practical security advice for startups, advice from people who've been there. Each episode, we'll interview a leader in their field and learn best practices and practical tips for securing your org. For today's episode, I'll be talking to Adam Baldwin, aka Evil Packet, Offensive Security or Zero. Adam was previously VP of Security MPM and founder of Lyft Security, an application and pen testing company focused on the JavaScript ecosystem. Adam is a two times DEF CON black badge holder. Hey, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, to get started, can you tell me how you got into the security industry? Well, I'll try to keep it short because it's a relatively long uh, story, which started in my youth, of course. Uh, I, I, I grew up in a you know, small farming town in Minnesota with nothing to do and, and computers and ended up getting in trouble for uh, getting into a, a local bulletin board system. That sort of sparked my curiosity, but also got me a mentor. Uh, and really, you know, got my interest in security, uh, reverse engineering, programming, things like that. That sparked my interest. I didn't really join the industry until much later during my time at Symantec, where I got to meet, you know, a lot of the ex uh, at stake uh, people that sort of guided and, and you know, mentored me in a way in the offensive side of things. And that's really where I sort of like my career took a, a turn to specifically the security industry. And what were you doing at Symantec at the time? So at Symantec, I ended up there doing uh, everything from firewall support, uh, you know, product product support to uh, ended ended up doing consulting. So I ended my time at Symantec doing uh, social engineering, penetration testing, you know, those kind of things. Yeah. And then you're currently on the offensive security team at Auth0. Yeah. Can you sort of describe to listeners what does it mean for a company to have an offensive team? The offensive team at Auth0, uh, you were an internal team that... Uh, is a is a trusted adversary. So we're a friendly adversary, meaning that we're going to attempt to hack the company um, and then uh, provide you with a report. Uh, you know, a regular adversary on the internet is not going to provide you with that um, thing. So, so yeah, we're we're that friendly sort of a goose in the garden causing chaos. Yeah, and do you sort of run game days? How do you plan sort of attacking the internal organization? It kind of depends. Uh, really, we're we're there to to provide the adversarial perspective. So we're we're trying to think evil. So as new features are going to come out, or somebody might say in product, "Hey, this sounds like a really good idea," and we're going to provide that that other side of the coin as if we build that, what could we do with it that could have a disastrous effect for our customers, our customer data, their customers, right? Yeah. Or ourselves. Does that does that open us up to risk? And sometimes. You have disagreement. So sometimes they might say, well, uh, that doesn't seem like a risk or that's theoretical. And we might have to say, well, okay, now we have to prove it. And so we have to actually attempt to uh, pull off those attacks against the organization to uh, know if they're possible. Uh, and sometimes we're going to get caught and we're going to learn you know, what, uh, what our capabilities are for detection. And sometimes we're not. And we're going to learn you know, where we can improve. Uh, Auth0 is a platform that provides centralized login and identity for other companies. Correct. Is that right? Yes. So if people get access to it, they sort of can have the keys to the kingdom. Right. So, were. you know, we're in a, in a sense taking on a lot of risk for those customers, right? So so we're taking on the uh, their threat model a bit. And what is the team assembled of? So we're we're currently a very small team. Um there's just a a, a few of us and uh, so we're we're uh, definitely a minority in the organization even in within the security organization. How does reporting, does you, do you work up to a CISO or is it within engineering? I'm actually in product uh, of all, of all okay. places, but um, which seems... I guess that makes sense with the early development. It's best to get early feedback on features. 
Right. Yeah. So the, the traditional pen test role is going to, you know, we're going to want to test features as they come out. Right. Um, and things like that. We haven't, my, my role isn't your typical red team, which is going to report up say to a, to a CISO. So we're, we're testing features. We're really focused on product, but the industry has gone both having kind of both that role as well as kind of the, uh, you know, red team role, um, which might be a little more attack simulation or assume breach, you know, other sort of campaigns that go beyond the product. Yeah. So you've been working in the Node ecosystem for a while, I think since 2013. What have you seen change over time in the world of Node? A lot and, and not a lot. Yeah, I started with Node back in 0.4, whenever that was, way, way back when. You know, we've seen changes. We, we sort of have three components, I think. We have what? Node Core, we have JavaScript, the language, and we have the ecosystem. Those are the three sort of major things I think of when I think of a Node. We've seen all of those evolve, but also, you know, stay fairly consistent. The language, you know, it's evolved. We've gotten new things since then, new operators, new language, you know, features. Uh, Node, same way. We've got new APIs, new things like that. And, and the ecosystem has continued to evolve for safety um, and as well as scale. Uh, you know, NPM uh, growing up, getting larger and larger, and then getting acquired, um, you know, from GitHub to give that some stability. So I think we've seen a lot mature, you know, I think about it mostly from the security perspective. So I've seen, I've seen a lot of maturity in terms of re release processes, maturity of the release process from node core. Um, those seem to kind of work like clockwork that, you know, that team is mm -hmm. really works hard on those. You sort of touched on, you worked at NPM um, and NPM was uh, acquired by GitHub. But prior to the acquisition, you were the VP of security. It's sort of an interesting company, I guess, NPM, providing hosting of packages that other people include in their software. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you faced as a VP of security for NPM? It was lots of, it was lots of challenges in terms of, um, I think the biggest was scale. Um, it was availability. Our biggest security problem was keeping the registry online so that you could get your packages. And beyond that, my challenge was... The, the constant conflict between keeping NPM safe and keeping all the users of NPM safe from themselves. And what do you mean by keeping them safe from themselves? When you run NPM install, it's inherently a dangerous action, right? Yeah. Um, you're taking you're taking code off the internet and you're executing it, right? And people complain about packages. You know, we do that in a lot of other ways too. It's not just NPM install, right? You down anytime you download something and execute it, right? You're performing a risky, a risky action. What about malicious packages on NPM? Was there any initiatives to help people or stop them? Yeah, that was a challenge, right? So malicious packages were definitely a, a, at the forefront. So we were trying to do, to do two things. We were trying to keep, you know, integrity of packages. So we wanted to keep people obviously out of our system so that we could keep, you know, packages flowing uh, and keep those packages with, with high integrity. But of course, anybody can publish anything. So you can, you, you can just create an account and publish, publish a package evangelize that package and get somebody to install it. It could be, of course, malicious. That's no um, you know, different than just sending your friend something and telling them to run it and effectively. Um, we did have efforts. We, we, were, we were, at the time that I left, executing all of the packages in a sandbox. And then we were starting to kind of do analysis on those, trying to see when you install them, what files do they touch? Is it something that's different than it was before? Um, and I still haven't seen tools or companies using this data, right? We're still going off of like, does it have a known vulnerability? You know, basically technology that we 
we invented like, uh, or not invented, but we uh, um, basically technology that we created like what, eight plus years ago with the Node Security Project. We're just looking at the the, the bomb, right? We're looking at the S-bomb or the bill of materials. Um, you know, what dependency of a known vulnerability? That's what we're looking at. We're not looking at all these other things currently, but we did have some efforts to do that. The thing is, is that wasn't very prevalent. It was a needle in a haystack. You get a piece of malware that, that, or a campaign that kind of dropped a few things here or there. Somebody's account would get popped and you'd see all their packages get republished with, you know, a, a backdoor or a bug door in it. But it was a drop in the bucket. Those publishes, when you're talking about like somewhere between like 7,000 to, I don't know, 20,000 publishes a day of, of new packages, you know, we're seeing like, you know, one to, you know, a few published here or there. Like it was a very, very minute yeah. piece of the registry. And the, the, the attacks that were more damaging were the, um, were not just the random things that could get published, but when an account was actually taken over. So that was the, that was the really the, the ones that we, that we worried about the yes, lint, you know, where, where an actual like package, uh, author's account is taken over and then republished, you know, something's republished for a, po for a pack popular package. And what did you do to sort of secure these accounts? Do you have any tips for securing them? 2FA. Yeah. The, the problem, the problem with 2FA is that it wasn't friendly for publishing. So you could either have 2FA and lock down your account, but as soon as you wanted CICD um, or 2FA as part of that, it became a real hassle. And I know that they've added some features since then that I'm not super familiar with, but they're working on that problem because that's a, that's a, that's a huge issue, right? Um, automating, automating the publication. The publishing of it, yeah. And then making sure that it comes from the signed author instead of the malicious person. Right. And all these things, all these things we have sort of in Git native, right? Like we can have signed commits and we can see that the commit came from somebody. We can enforce that with a pull request sort of workflow and things like that. All things that as soon as you step out, kind of we, we lose that into the publication process. And what exists on, on GitHub isn't necessarily what got published into NPM. We don't have real good tools to do that diffing and yeah. and we're not looking at those signals. Um, and that was the efforts that we were trying to do, you know, right during the acquisition, right when I right when I was done, was make those signals available to developers to look at so that you could, you know, use automation to say, well, um, you know, merge that or publish it or whatever, unless these are true or install it unless these are true. Yeah, and I guess that makes it easier for maintainers if they have an external yeah. pull request or something that comes in, this can help protect them. Another project you started was the Node Security Project. Can you tell people a bit more about this project? Yeah, so it doesn't technically exist anymore, um, but it was an effort to bring security as a core value to Node. So we saw in the early days of Node if we learned anything from all the other ecosystems that came before us, security was going to be a big deal. We were going to need to know all kinds of different things. We need to have those processes mature. People weren't super serious. They're more serious about getting the applications out and not necessarily focused on security, which I guess is the trade-off between sort of user experience that's, and yeah, getting things done. That's your trade-off. Um, um, what are your thoughts on the ease of the language via its security integrity? The ease of the language is what has brought new developers, right? And I don't know the numbers, but there's some ridiculous number of, of new JavaScript developers sort of coming to the ecosystem um, every day, right? And that's great. That that bring, that that introduces people, the reduces the barriers to entry, gets people building things. Um, and, and the thing is, every time I build something, I, I try to get it working first. 
and then I meet the rest of my requirements. Security was, as far as I know, was never a like a, a requirement for the language, right? It was created very hastily and we've been trying to backpedal all these years to, to add integrity to the language, but that's your trade-off, right? So you have this, this language that, that is very approachable, that gives me consistency between the browser uh, and the server. I can just think in one language, but there's a lot of coercion going on. There's a lot of like patterns and, and there's ways of doing things that, that, that aren't well paved. And so you end up with, with uh, you end up, I don't know, lost like in terms of like trying to bolt on security afterward. I don't actually think that there's, even if you were to prioritize security as the language, you know, you'd still end up people trying to make it work and then trying to bolt on security. Building new applications, do you have any advice about how they can sort of go about thinking of their sort of top list for security aspects that they sort of address first? I hate that this list hasn't changed in 10 years. This is what I don't like. And I was thinking about this before, before, before the podcast, but using less packages is the starting point, right? So having less attackable surface is, is the best thing. So if you can not use third-party components, don't, um, if you can, if you, it, the problem is that that's easy. It's easy to grab something off the shelf, somebody else is maintaining yeah. it, somebody else take care of it and bolt it in. You just, you just bought a pile of risk by NPM installing that, that, that thing potentially. Starting point is use less packages. Okay. Now everyone's gonna say, well, I'm already using a bunch of a bunch of packages. Well, the second thing is keep them up to date. That sounds silly. Um, and there's gonna be somebody out there who's gonna be like, yeah, but what about malware? Because so use something like Dependabot or some some automation to keep your dependencies updated. Do that. Um, and somebody's gonna say something about malware. Basically, the amount of malware being produced and the the if you're just automating those sort of updates, you're not going to have like I think it's a it's a less risky action than than, than staying. Now there is a dwell there's a there's kind of an optimal dwell time uh, for updates. This was this is a few years old. It used to be something like six weeks. So if you waited six weeks, the likelihood of some something being in that package getting seen by the community is pretty high. So there's kind of a sweet spot to kind of like to, to, to lag, but that's going to vary from organization to organization. Um, and then finally, I think is start taking advantage of signals that we haven't, that we haven't been looking at. So when you do update, when you do have these sort of like gates is to look at the behaviors of the package and then compare those. So diff them, this package should only do X. Damn. Okay, well, why is the new version doing Y? The difficulty is it's not automatable in a, in, a, in a really easy way. It's time intensive for a human and it's boring. Like it's not interesting. So I think that we'll continue to just sort of put our head in the sand as it comes to third party packages. SBOM's not gonna save us. You know, having a, having a, a list of packages, we already have that, you know. Um, it's it's all the behaviors that uh, are going to be derived, you know, from from that package, you know, or, or between the two versions, and then of course that could be unique for your environment. We've seen targeted malware that only executed in a in a very specific environment. Uh, the copay uh, incident. How did the copay incident bug? Basically, it was a it was a piece of malware that that would only execute if it was 
run within a project that had a specific package JSON description, which happened to fit the their wallet, their their cryptocurrency wallet. Oh, so it was basically like a cryptocurrency malware that was smart enough to know. Really. Yep, that was attacking the build process to get into the wallet. So it would not, it would effectively not own any other build processes. Yeah, it would only. How much of out. these like evil packages so. do you think are related to cryptocurrency and mining? Yeah, the things the things we saw was you know people goofing off. You know, you, you could see your, you know, your, oh, you know, when you install this at RMRF slash, okay, you know, it removes all your files. That's not really that interesting. And then you would have environment stealers, security researchers, like stuff that would just steal environment variables and kind of like pill for some data. And then you had your, your targeted, you know, your targeted stuff that, uh, or cryptocurrency miners, but the targeted stuff that we saw was yeah. cryptocurrency. Related. So if you were, um, you know, we actually have a lot of startups who are cryptocurrency companies, and if they have a node project, would you ever need practical advice for them? Should they use any external packages or should they just try and write everything from scratch? I, th I think that the integrity of their build process for their wallets is important enough that they need to be carrying packages from you know one repository to the another and doing the analysis. I think that, that the risk there, uh, again, it depends on your threat model, right? Like yeah. for them, that seems like a significant risk. Um, Whereas, you know, my website doesn't yeah. really matter. You know, we kind of touched a bit on the software supply chain. Do you have any tips for sort of how to secure that software supply chain? Yeah, I think the, I think the first the first step is for companies to realize that they have a supply chain problem, and they most companies see it. It's 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 an iceberg, right? So you see the little the the, the couple packages you're using inside of your package JSON or you know part of your you know GoDeps or whatever. You see those couple of packages, um, but it goes deeper, right? Like they have they have dependencies and dependencies, and so you have to realize that you have a problem, and that that problem is going to cost you significantly to solve. Um, there's there's some tools, there's registries. There's like you know I don't need to go into the vendor space, but like there's vendors that that provide you know alternative registries that you could have your own private registry, and there's open source versions of those too. So you have your packages in a bucket. But if you have sort of like a net, like, you know, the evil thing, you brought this thing over and dropped it in here, what's well, just over here. So like that, you have to have processes to ensure the integrity and like the behavior of those things as you lift them over into your environment. We've gone way too long as an industry wanting uh, security and convenience for free. I don't think, I don't, I don't think we're going to get there. Like, I think that if you want efficiency in this process, and have you know the thousands and thousands of dependencies that a typical project has, it's not going to yeah, be efficient. Yeah. If you want it to be secure, it's not going to be efficient. It's not going to be cheap. Uh, it it's going to be automatable to a point. So you also mentioned earlier you're on the product team. So if you like you know someone starts a new pro um, product and you're sort of bringing up some of these concerns, how do you sort of balance between these sort of pros and cons of both the security and sort of convenience for sort of you know getting the thing shipped and getting it out there? It's a business tolerance for risk. Um, you have to play that game. And unfortunately, the longer an org goes without an incident, the more risk taking I've seen an org get. And, and I'm mostly speaking from my consulting days. Is there any way to quantify the risk? Let's say, you know, you're a new personal security team, you notice all this risk and you go to management, you're like, 
there's all of this risk. How do you sort of quantify that this risk is there and there's sort of a monetary kind of cost associated with it? When the offensive team walks in and hands you your keys, that's when you know, right? So the offensive team or a pen test team or a red team or whatever you want to call it can do that. They can say, you know, they can run a simulation. If we happen to compromise this package, where do we get? And, that, and running that scenario is going to quantify that, right? Is this possible? It, it, it gives you a chance of seeing what that would look like. And you can run that as a tabletop, right? You know, just sitting down uh, with a couple engineers, a couple security people, you know, a manager or a product person and being like, let's, let's think about how we would take down the company, right? Like, how would we do that and, and have fun with it? You know, and then say like, well, that's probably not practical. And you kind of put things into one bucket and then you put the things that are practical in another bucket and the things that are kind of unknown, you put a question mark and maybe you want to get those tested. But that's a that's a good a good cheap way. Have a half hour conversation about you know, what would happen if somebody compromised one of these packages and you're going to quickly see, oh, they're going to steal all these environment variables. Once they have those environment variables, now what does that give them? Oh, they can get into the server. Okay, once they have access to that, what does that give them? And then you can kind of see how you're going to yeah. that, that tree form. And then you can sort of have initiatives to either address like the strengthening of which part of the process is sort of lacking. Right. Yeah. And and that that point, like what you actually do to remediate it varies drastically from from org to org. But that's going to be one way of uncovering like how that sort of snowball is going to run through the org. And so what advice would you give someone on the defensive side? trying to make your job harder uh, on the offensive side. You know, go back to those, those things we talked about with, you know, kind of securing supply chain, but things that, that cause us problems, um, you know, on the human side of it. So uh, if you look at like the Verizon data breach report, you know, there's the social engineering is at, is at the top, right? So technical controls, networks are getting tighter and tighter, you know, from the outside. And so we're having to come in through creative ways, social ways, Challenging something, uh, you know, having protocol or practice for verifying identities, you know, things like that, that's going to stop us. Passwords, don't reuse your passwords. I, you know, I, I hate that I'm still having to sort of say this, but it's easy to reuse passwords, but don't do it, right? Especially between your personal stuff and your work environment. Absolutely not. You know, the password, password safes, password, whatever. 2FA, of course, is great, but you have to weigh that against convenience. I use keys where I can. So if something has a key, I use it. Uh, I enroll backup keys and then keeping things updated. You know, can't, uh, it, it makes things harder for me if you have uh, an environment with up-to-date software. That said, we still get in because of configuration issues or you know, mistakes or an emergency procedure that say uh, opened up something temporarily and it never got, it never got permanently fixed. You know, those to-dos pile up. Those to-dos create risk. So, you know, from the defensive side, keeping track of all those things that you're worried about on a risk register, you know, something like that, just to keep track of, of and prioritize. Who sort of responsibility would you say it is to sort of go and tidy up and fix all of those open issues? It, you know, on the one hand, it's like it's like everyone's responsibility. Security is a, a spread load across the organization. While you're in there, you know, fixing up a test, if you can, you know, you see something out of date or whatever, you know, you can, you can update those or uh, whatever, but just making it part of the current practice to always be on the lookout. Yeah. It's our responsibility, but then 
you have to have a verification process. And that's again, where you're, you're sort of, you're auditing, you're, you're auditing your compliance, your offensive teams, all the sort of checks and balances come in to be like, are we doing the thing that we say we're going to do, right? Are we doing those things? And, and unfortunately uh, we're human, we're fallible. Uh, we may not have malicious intent, but we may just use a crappy password because it was convenient. Uh, my work laptop wasn't working. So I wrote it over here. I did it on mobile. So I just typed in a you know bad password and then that password persisted. Or maybe we just, copied it or screenshot it and put it into Slack. You know, we never deleted that screenshot, but it's still sitting there. Yeah, I'm always recording product demos and they always have both the QR codes and the tokens and it's a very quick cleanup procedure afterwards. It's always easier to create infrastructure and tokens than it is to remove it. And another thing that that I'm going to bring up just briefly, it may not be on this topic for this this question, but I've noticed a lot of tools focusing on looking for secrets (laughs) and sensitive data in Git repositories. And like I mentioned earlier, what exists on Git and what exists in NPM often differ. And so I've noticed a lot of packages leaking secrets to NPM. So you'll get a publish and there's a .env file in that in that thing from testing. Uh, and it, it may be nothing or it may be something. So keeping track of the artifacts that you publish to the public such as any of those packages to PyPy, NPM, Go, Docker images, those kind of things. Doing a quick run through of those are going to limit any sense of data that I might have as an anonymous external yeah. attacker. Um, that's going to make my job harder as well. Actually, I saw that GitHub now has better, I guess, like UX and tags on the API tokens. So if you see an API token, you know what the token says, if whether it's like a read or a write, or it's for the org or the repo, which I feel yeah, definitely the end user experience for creating tokens could be more obvious. Yeah. I think that that was a very good move on their part. At the, at the same time, like adversaries have better patterns now to find or validate secrets, but so do defenders. Yeah. Right. You can go through and profile all the secrets you're using in production and then build regexes, even if you don't have a fancy tool and look for them in Slack and NPM and, and, and GitHub, right? Like that's something that's, that's possible. I guarantee you, if you go look, you're going to find something. Do you have any tips for, um, you know, many of these sort of secrets are sort of third parties and often you, you know, let's say you're using um, an email provider, you might create like an email provider token, but it is a long lift token. Do you have any advice for sort of how to rotate and manage and sort of keep track of these sort of third-party tokens, which sort of connect to cloud services? No, I'm usually the one that's causing the, <laughs> causing the token to have to be re- refreshed. And I'm not on the other end uh, having to do that. The only thing I will say is make sure that that, that that rotation is done and that you don't try to take the easy route, which is unpublish the artifact. Once something's published to NPM, it's public. And, you know, there's a hundred mirrors that just took it. It's out there, you know, make sure that that rotation at least happens. Simply happens. Um, Can you tell me about um, mentorship? You know, you touched on the beginning. You said you had a really good mentor at Semantic and sort of how it's guided your career. Yeah, I had, I've had a couple over my, my career. One, uh, when I was 15, 16, you know, got me into reverse engineering and programming. That was my first opportunity. When I got in trouble, he didn't just get me in trouble with my parents. We had a conversation about ethics, right? Like we, we talked about what was right, what was wrong, uh, why it was possible, uh, you know, what other type of hacks were possible. That opportunity fed 
fed my entire career. Um, and you can link to the, the post. It's a, it's a rather long story. I won't go into it. But that opportunity showed itself throughout my career multiple times. And then once I was at Symantec, Pelis Yuli and uh, Katie Mysterious both sort of guided me on the offensive side and and provided like you know ways to to educate myself to understand you know how to do things and how the industry worked and how to meet people and, and just really offered opportunity without you know they didn't owe me anything and so I've, I found that when you find somebody and I found a number of people that like I will absolutely give my time to these people because they want it, right? Like they, they, they want to learn it. They're passionate. And you see these, I love giving opportunities and, and sharing people. And so I'll share this here too. My, uh, feel free to DM me on Twitter. My, my door is open. If you, you know, want, uh, to chat about, you know, career security, whatever I'm open. Rarely does anybody ever take me up on this offer. So if someone is sort of new early in their career, and they sort of heard of mentorship. Can you sort of describe what exactly it is and sort of how it helped you? For me, it was it was knowledge. So Jim, my, my first mentor, kind of just kept me on the rails. He knew that I wanted to learn. So he'd kind of just put something out there and he'd point me in the right direction. But his thing was always like, I'll point you in the right direction, but you've got to run. Like you've got to go that, that way. So for mentorship for me was, um, different from sort of a formal like education, do this task, it's complete. It's sort of here's this very informal, yeah, in, in a way of, hey, look at this cool thing, you know, and then that would spawn some some learning and education, you know, removing nag screens from shareware, you know, learning how to how to uh, use technical tools. So not only was it, so I'll give you an example. It, it was everything. It was it was all encompassing because not only did I learn like technical skills. Um, I remember one time I, I fixed a neighbor's computer and they gave me 20 bucks. Well, we got to have a conversation about, well, I was working for him and I was doing service through his shop. And so that should have been routed through the shop. So it was interesting to have these sort of conversations about business and, you know, and uh, ethics. And, and it was it was much more than just a technical learning what what he, yeah. he knew. It was it was more from the experience. And sort of interesting you touched on ethics, how... So would you recommend security, especially very junior people learn about ethics? Because I guess there's two paths they could potentially go down. Well, I think there's a lot more opportunity for people now to tinker and not get in trouble and not violate, you know, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act or whatever with bug bounties. You know, the, the, the thing there is that actions have consequences and, you know, just simply, you know, sending the wrong requests could cause a problem and, and, and land you in hot water. And that could be scary. And so bug bounties offer a way to play around and experiment without that um, uh, that fear, right? Of, of But not all programs are friendly either, right? Like you might think you're acting in good faith, but there's no protections uh, really uh, unless they sort of like have stated that outright. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on what the, the terminology is. Do you run a... Uh, bug bounty program at Auth0? We do run a bug bounty program. Yeah, we both, we run a bug bounty program um, and a vulnerability disclosure program. So that one's like a, um, a bounty program and one's a just disclosure anybody can report. It's kind of more of a public. And um, do you have any tips for people who are sort of looking to start their first bug bounty? You said the key word, look, that's, that's it. Absolutely look. Don't 
Don't put any other constraints on top of it. Just go on an adventure. You won't be efficient at it. Like when you first start, you're you're not going to find, you, you probably won't find anything, but you're going to learn. You're going to learn the tools. You're going to learn the techniques. If you're not looking, you're not going to find anything. If you look, you're going to find. That's, that's, the, that's the starting point. For our bug bounty, if you have questions, just reach out. You know, we're friendly. We're happy to answer questions. You know, if you're if you're not sure where to where to start, we've got a list of targets on the bug bounty program, so you can kind of, you know, look there. And you can also look at reports published from other vendors. You know, what are some interesting bugs that were found in another vendor that you know maybe you can go find in in Zero and report to us and get a bounty. Cool. I'm interested about your um, DefCon black badge. And this is sort of a Closing thoughts. Can you tell me how you're two times DEFCON black badge holder? Can you tell me how you got them? Yeah. So a DEFCON black badge is entrance for life. So it's it's called the Uber badge or the black badge, uh, and it gets you gets you admission for life. I uh, obtained two badges um, over a couple of years by working with a team. I can't take credit for it. It was a team sport. I play as part of uh, CTFs and, and all kinds of stuff. So we were doing a competition at DEFCON called the Mystery Challenge put on by somebody named Lost. And we started out not doing very well for a number of years. And the thing is, it was a, it was a mystery challenge. And so you didn't know what you were going to be doing. And that was the fun part about it was, it wasn't just like a, a, a capture the flight competition where you were hacking into something, right? What were just technical skills or um, social engineering, right? Which is, or defending, you know, catching the, catching the red team, you know, the blue team village or car hacking. It was potentially all of those you know, or things that we'd never even heard of. In one adventure. And so kind of a choose your own adventure in a way where, you know, you you made your way through this. Through those adventures, we found ourselves in the basement of a casino, uh, having social engineered our way to get access to their drill press to to pull a lock off of a, a big steel cylinder that we had to get into. Inside of it was electronic components that we had to you know, make a, make a laser receiver that once you held it up to a certain light that we had to find based on clues, it would give us a message. And so it was kind of a scavenger hunt. It was technical prowess, lock picking, electronics, cryptography, riddles, you name it, was involved. And that's what we won the black badge for was the mystery challenge. And it was, we spent three or three years or five years, I can't remember now, losing to the same person over and over. And what we found was we started out as small teams and now we're actually one kind of large team that, that do all kinds of things together. And what we found was one, the diversity of the team absolutely made us stronger. So we had people that were into electronics. All of a sudden we had people that were into lock picking and people that were into crypto and stuff like that. And we came together and we made this, this team that was a lot uh, more proficient. And eventually, you know, we sort of unlocked, you know, a victory through that. The black badge, it's a prize, but but the people and the team that we formed and that perspective shift that I had through that contest is way more valuable. Can you tell me more about the perspective shift that you had? Yeah, it's looking at problems. We have bias. Base 10. We have 10 fingers, right? Well, isn't it eight fingers and two thumbs? Exactly. Uh, and so when you start, uh, I think one year we had to do something with base 17. It was DEFCON 17, maybe. It was thinking in those terms. And so things we were looking at didn't make sense. We had to translate them and and riddles, right? Like words can be used in multiple ways. The same thing as a tool, uh, you know, a drill press or a, a lock pick or whatever. It can be used for good or, or 
or evil, right? Like, and so yeah. um, going through that experience and it was fun um, learning things that other people learned and the approaches that other people took. And that taught me a lot about what I didn't know and, and, and to, uh, to respect that, like the experience and, and, uh, of others and diversity and, and all that. Like, I think that that really, that had a big impact to me on that side of things. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to sort of, um, like growing a team with diverse viewpoints and absolutely, um, learning from other people or always will make everything stronger. And yep. Every time better. somebody throws sort of an argument about that at me, I like, I, I could point to that example and I'm like, I have concrete proof that that helped us win this, this thing and helped us be better. So, you know, going back to you, you working in the product team V working in the yep. office of the security, like the CISO, because I guess sometimes I talk to the security V the rest of the org, but I think working with the rest of the team to accomplish the shared yep. goals. Having that perspective close, you know, or put in different places, right? If we're, if we're siloed off, in our own little world as security, only security, how, how are we going to spread what we know and influence the rest of the org? We have to get into their spaces and not only understand what they're doing, but then just, you know, offer up, you know, our perspective we will win from having those conversations. Again, you know, the tabletop exercise we mentioned earlier, yeah. you know, get that group of people together and you're going to have a better defensive posture after that conversation. Cool. I think that's a perfect way to end. Um, Thanks, Adam, um, for your time today. This podcast was created by Teleport. Teleport allows engineers and security professionals to unified access for SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications, and databases across all environments. To learn more, visit us at goteleport.com.